Great to be with you tonight. Coming up on the, uh, we'll finish up chapter 1 and jump a little into chapter 2 tonight. Uh, in First Peter, as we talk about, the word at work. The word at work. Let's pray together. Father, now we bow before you. We bow our hearts before you, Lord. And we ask for a blessing, Lord Jesus. Help us see through the eyes of your servant, Peter. Help us behold you, God, with eyes of faith. Teach us, Lord, to be more faithful servants of you, living as we long for home. Lord, if... Um, as the psalmist prayed, Lord, search me, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Say what you want to say to us tonight, Lord. Convict us of sin, increase our faith, bless us, God, that we might be a blessing. Strengthen us this day, this evening, Lord, to live boldly for you this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, and as you do, going to look at a, just going to reference a couple of other verses. Um, I'm going to talk about the word at work tonight. God's word is powerful. In fact, in the class I'm teaching on Sunday mornings about how to study the Bible, we, we talk about the power of the Word. In Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the Word of God is living and active, Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So there's no word like God's word. And God's word is inherently powerful. And so when we proclaim God's word, and when God's word is in us, the word itself has power. The word itself changes. The word itself acts. And so, if you think about it, that's actually a great encouragement. And it's a great relief because the power is not in us. So, it, the, so our service to God and our uh, and our uh, and our and even our growth in Him is not at root based on our power because we're weak. But at root, it's based on God's power. So if we preach God's word, we can trust that he will do it. If we consume God's word by reading it and studying it, we can know that his word will do a deep work in us. And that's what we want to happen. Uh, and, and tonight we're going to talk about just a few of the ways that God's word works in us from 1 Peter chapter 1. And so if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. First Peter chapter 1, uh, and we're going to pick up in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth... 
for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of God. You may be seated. So I want to see three um, works that the word does in our lives. Number one, the word purifies our souls to love. Number two, the world, the word rebirths us into eternal life. And number three, the word matures us into salvation. The word purifies our souls to love. The word rebirths us into eternal life. And the word matures us into salvation. First, the word purifies our souls to love. So last time we talked about our holy hope, that uh, our, the hope in the midst of our suffering is a big theme of First Peter, and our hope is certain. Uh, and that, that hope that we have is not just a, a nice idea, something that makes us feel a little bit better. What it is is it's something that fundamentally informs and changes the way that we live, right? Because uh, living without hope is about the worst way you can live. In fact, most people can't really live long without hope. But when we have a hope, when we know, for example, that Christ is coming back for us, that necessarily, if we really believe it, must change the way we live. We don't live like we used to live. We live in view of, in, in the expectation that God who sees and knows all is coming back to judge the world. And so we're going to live holy for him, eagerly waiting his return. And then we can also, at the same time, endure anything because we know that this isn't all there is. That this is just, uh, he, he says, he says uh, all flesh is like the grass. It's short, but eternity is long. And so since we have an inheritance in Christ that nothing and no one can take away, we don't have to give in to fear. We don't have to give in to sin. We don't have to grab and take and clamor for worldly things like most of the world tells us to. We can and we must live holy lives because we are children of the Holy One. And having been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we grow in holiness in this age as we await the perfection that God's going to bring to us at the resurrection of the dead, the glorification of our bodies, and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. And so that's our holy hope that we talked about last time. And now Peter is continuing to flesh out some specific ways that this hope should, uh, uh, should work in our lives. And he begins there in verse 22 saying, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So we have to ask, what does Peter mean when he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Well, I think obedience to the truth, that phrase there, 
because that's the operative phrase that we've purified our souls by our obedience to the truth. I think that's actually a reference to faith, to believe. Obeying the truth is a way of saying, believing it, trusting it, embracing it in such a way that it changes who we are. You know, we tend to think of faith and obedience as separate entities, and they, they are distinct, at the, but at the same time, they're inseparable. I believe the, you know, sometimes we think, oh, I trust and then I obey, and they're two completely separate things. But I think the biblical concept of faith is more robust than that. In fact, we know that because James says faith without works is dead. And so a genuine faith, biblically speaking, is a faith that obeys. The obedience isn't what saves, but it's evidence that one's faith is genuine saving faith. So as we've said before, faith is the root and obedience is the fruit. But if the root is good, the fruit will come. That's why Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. Because the root is inevitably shown to be what it is by the fruits. And so we know a tree by its fruit, not because the fruit saves, but because the fruit tells us about the root. And this juxtaposition is, is quite common in the New Testament. For example, John 3.36, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God obeys it, uh, uh, remains on him. And so we see Jesus right there actually puts the two ideas in parallel construction. On the one hand, you believe, and on the other hand, you don't obey. <laughs> so in other words, to believe is to obey. It's hard to say that you trust somebody and then not take their advice. Uh, uh, Paul actually uses this same language in the book of Romans. For example, in Romans 1.5, Paul says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And so Paul says that the actual purpose, one of the purposes of him even being called as an apostle is to bring about the what he calls the obedience of faith. And that is that that is that the 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 truth about Christ demands not only demands faith of course, but for one who truly believes the truth about Christ, obedience must follow because what's the fundamental Christian truth? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so faith and obedience, though they are distinct, they're inseparable. They go together. And so Peter says that, uh, he goes on, he says that obedience to the truth, that is genuine faith in the gospel, that changes who we are, that is the result of new birth, such that we become new people, such that we want, that we now desire to please God from the heart. That obedience, of fa- that obedience to the truth, he says, purifies our hearts. It purifies our souls. That is, if, if we have truly embraced Christ as our Lord, as our treasure, as our king, then Peter says that our hearts then have been purified. We've been made clean by God. That's what Christ does is he cleanses us. We come to him by faith and he makes us clean. That is, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, when you turn to Christ, he makes you clean. He purifies you. He makes you new. You see, one of the, the, I mean, a fundamental aspect of genuine faith is that 
when a person comes to Christ, they come because for the first time they see themselves as they are. For the first time they see, man, I'm a sinner that needs forgiveness and I better go to Christ to be forgiven of my sin or else there's no hope for me. And so, you know, we talk about repentance and faith. They go, they're two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. So, the, uh, so a fundamental posture of faith is one of seeing one's need of uh, forgiveness, one's need of change. And when that happens to you, when that work of grace in your heart by the Spirit is working in your life, and you start seeing yourself for, for who you really are, you start seeing all kinds of things that you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize I was like that. And God begins a convicting work in your life to begin to change. But that's the glory of it, is that as you turn to him, he purifies us. He changes us. When we believe in Christ, the Bible says that we are justified. That is, that we are declared righteous by God. So in the courtroom of God, God, when we turn to Christ, in the courtroom of God, there is a not guilty immediately declared over our lives. Not guilty. We immediately stand clean as those washed of all of our sin, past, present, and future. So it's immediate in one sense, but in another sense, our purification is also progressive. True faith is the result of new birth. New birth is the birthing of a new self in you as your old self dies. In fact, the Bible says that if you're in Christ, your old self is dead. (laughs) The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so so the Christian life then is Christ. uh, he, He is changing us. And when we become a believer, we are changed immediately. A fundamental change takes place in our heart, where whereas before our fundamental posture was towards sin and self and against God, now our fundamental posture is towards God and away from sin and self. So a fundamental change takes place, such that now, so that so that we we are truly changed, although we may not yet be fully changed, and so now we battle the remnants of our old self. But we can't lose because Christ dwells in us. And so when we, fought, when we follow Christ, when we have the obedience to the truth, Peter says, we are, we are purified in our souls, both instantaneously and progressively. And the result of this purification, Peter says, is that we love one another. He says, for a sincere brotherly love, love one, uh, love one another earnestly from a pure Heart. So that's what, that's what Christ purifies our hearts to do, is to love. If there's one word that sums up the Christian faith, it is this. It's, it's love. As Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Paul, in one place, calls it the law of love. That's why it says that the law is summed up in this uh, this word, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the measure by which we will be judged, even as Christians. How well did we love other people? And see, that's, that's much deeper than, than, uh, than anything else, right? Because you could do nice things for people and not love them. But God calls us to love. And so we're to love and and really, the fact is, is that's supernatural because there's some folks out there that are hard to love. 
And honestly, the natural inclination is to is inward and not outward. And so it really is supernatural, something that's supernatural that actually turns us out of ourselves towards others. To care about, to care about uh, both the temporal and eternal needs of others. And that would, that would push us, in a sense, out of merely just living for ourselves to do something about the real needs, it's temporal and eternal needs of others. But what is that? That, that doesn't come naturally. It comes from our heart purified by God's grace, putting sin and self to death. And so the Christian life is one of love. And love means that we truly care about people in view of reality. And that means, and that's a, it's important because there's all, the world has created some crazy definitions about love, but I'm talking about biblical love. Biblical love doesn't mean that we blindly are approving of anything and everything anybody wants to do. That's not love. I mean, for example, how can you, how, can, how are you loving somebody if they're living a life in rebellion against God that's going to drag them down to hell and you don't say anything about it? Love doesn't want people to go to hell. And so love actually compels us to stand up against certain ideas, certain, un, certain false beliefs and behaviors. That's what the Bible calls love. And, and in fact, in the world we live in today, that kind of love will actually be called, in many cases, hate. But if that's the case, then so be it, because we ultimately answer to God and not to the world. But the, the, the key issue, though, is our heart. Do we have genuine love and compassion for people? Do we, do we love, as Peter says, from a pure heart? See, that's the struggle, right? And that's what we're talking about. It's not just enough to love externally. Peter says the call of the Christian life is to love someone from a pure heart. And so that means that not only should I do what is right, but I should do what is right from a pure heart. Now, don't let that make you think, because some people... Some people think, well, I can't do it with a pure heart, so I'm not going to do it at all. Man, get over yourself. Come on now. You do what is right because it's right, and you pray to God to give you a pure heart while you do it. And God will. He'll give us a pure heart. God can enable us to love. God can enable us to get over ourselves. We know that because uh, he's changed us and he's changed others. A purified heart is one that loves that loves a brother and sister in Christ, that puts others before themselves, that loves, like the Apostle Paul said to love in 1 Corinthians 13. You should, we should, you should read that passage and, and ask yourself, do I love like that? It's astounding. What we're called to, as, to love as Christians. Are we patient <laughs> and kind? Are we, do we envy or boast? Are we arrogant or rude? Do we love in a way that Paul says that does not insist on its own way? Are we irritable or resentful? Do we rejoice at wrongdoing or do we rejoice at the truth? Do we bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things? That's what love does. Paul says. But see, what is it? It's supernatural. But Peter says, if you if you have obedience to the truth, if you have truly trusted in Christ, then guess what? 
Your soul has been purified for this very purpose. And you can do it. And you will do it. And as you do it, the world will say. And God will get the glory for it. So number one, the word purifies our souls to love. And number two, the word rebirths us into eternal life. The word rebirths us into eternal life. That's what he says in verse 23 through 25. He says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And so, Paul, uh, Peter basically says, he's, he's just restating it. Our hearts have been purified. Our souls have been purified by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love out of a pure heart. And then he, he really kind of puts it a different way. Our souls have been purified by obedience to the truth. Another way of looking at it is that we've been born again. We've been changed. We've been born again. How? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God. And so here, what's important is he's talking about, as we said, the power of God's word. The agent of our new birth, Peter is saying there, is what? Is God's word. That's the agent, right? We have been born again. How? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. If you are born again in this room tonight, it's because God's word came to you and was powerful in you to grow and to, and to uh, produce in you faith and love and good works. It's God's power at work in your life. That's what did it. God's word did it. God's seed. God's seed in you birthed new life in you. The image, of course, is one of human procreation. As male as the male is the active agent in human procreation, so God's word is the active agent in spiritual procreation. That is that the children of God are conceived through his word. Children of God are conceived through his word. That's why, that's why we have to just be utterly committed to God and his word and to just speak the truth of Christ into our lives and into the lives of others because there, there it is again. The word itself is powerful. The word itself is powerful. So if you can just sow the seed and just get it in there, you don't know what God's going to do. And so we don't have to worry about, oh, I'm just, I don't have all the answers or I don't know what to say. Well, look, look, just don't put all that pressure on yourself. Just, just tell the good news of Christ. Tell what Christ has done for you. Sow the truth of God's word and let God's word do the work because it is what is the agent of new birth. That's what Peter said. It is the one who we, that has given us new birth because why? Because it's living and abiding. Living and active, as the author of Hebrews said. That's why, for example, that we as a church and as a pastor are so committed to the straightforward uh, understanding and explanation of God's word. Because it's God's word that is powerful. The life, if you will, <laughs> the life is in the seed, right? When a farmer goes and he sows seed, he, the life is in the seed. If you don't plant the seed, there, you're not going to have any fruit. 
You, the seed has to go in the ground. It doesn't matter what else you do. You can water the ground all you want, but if you don't put the seed in the ground, there's nothing. You have to put the seed. And even then, once you put the seed in the ground, you know, we can, we can, we can, treat the, the, we can try to treat the circumstances and make the proper circumstances for the seed to grow, but we can't make the seed grow. Only God makes the seed grow. And it's the same way. We just put the seed in there. And then beg God to make it grow. And so we don't need to unnecessarily discourage ourselves by focusing on our weakness. And totally forgetting that it has nothing to do with us. Because the power is not in us anyways. It's in God and it's in his word. So we just sow it. We sow it. We live it. We water it in our lives with our ones. We live it. We speak it. We water it. And we watch God do the work. And so, uh, so Peter's encouraging us, and, 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 it's, and it's encouragement, right? He, he's not putting it, he's putting it in clear terms. He's telling these Christians who are suffering, he says, hey, don't forget, you've been born again <laughs> by God's word. Don't forget that. Don't neglect that. Sometimes, you know, it's just easy to kind of go in life and, we, and, and say, well, I can't do that, or I can't be like that. Or, you can be whatever God wants you to be. You've been born again. <laughs> So something supernatural has happened inside of you. Don't, don't downplay that. Don't, don't, don't relegate it to a corner. If you've been born again, something supernatural has happened to you. God's living and abiding word has taken root in your heart and is, and is sprouting up to eternal salvation in your life. And I think that's a part of his encouragement there because he, he quotes Psalm 40, I mean Isaiah 40, uh, there to talk about the eternality of God's word. God's word is eternal. It endures forever. It cannot be broken. And I think what Peter's doing is he's giving the believer an encouragement. If you've been born again by God's living and abiding and eternal word, when all flesh is like grass, but God's word abides forever, but guess what? But if God's word abides in you, then guess what? You're going to abide forever too. You're not just flesh anymore. The word of God lives in you. And so as long as the word of God keeps going, you're going to keep going. That's what he's saying. He's trying to encourage them. God's word cannot be broken. It cannot fall to the ground. That's the word of the gospel. It's, it's an imperishable, it's imperishable seed. It can, it's seed that cannot die. And so if it lives in us, it will live through us and it will keep us alive and it will give us strength <laughs> to live. Remember the Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. He bears its fruit in its season, and his leaf does not wither. That's what... If God's word lives in us, we're like a tree that can never run dry. That's what God's word does in us. And, he, and so he quotes this passage here of Isaiah 40. And, I, um, and the context of Isaiah 40, I think, is just really powerful. And I think it's part of the reason why Peter quotes it. He, he refers to the, the word of the gospel. He quotes Isaiah 40. Uh, and then he says uh, at the end of verse 25 there, and this word is the good news 
that was preached to you. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter is identifying the word that was proclaimed in Isaiah 40 as the gospel of Peter's day. Right? And remember, there's 700 years in between Isaiah and there's Peter. But Peter is saying this word that Isaiah was talking about is the gospel that was preached to you. Okay? And, and if you look at Isaiah 40, the context of Isaiah 40 is God comforting his people for the, <laughs> concerning the coming judgment that they're going to face in exile to Babylon. So Israel is going to be exiled for their sin, their breaking of the covenant. Their sins will get what they deserve, but God still says to them that in the end, he will show them mercy. That even after the exile because of their sin, God's going to bring them back. He's going to redeem them. He's going to comfort them. And then he, that, the, the quote there comes in Isaiah uh, Isaiah 40, um, about all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of the grass. The, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so that, that statement there is actually to be an encouragement to what? To the Jews concerning their exile. Because he's telling them that I'm going to restore you one day. And guess what? It's a guarantee. Why? Because all flesh is like grass, but my word remains forever. So God is encouraging the ancient Israelites, saying, my word is sure, and this is my word. I'm going to restore you one day. So what is Peter saying? Well, I think he's saying this. I think he's saying that God's redemption of Israel from their exile is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. The restoration of of Israel from their sin was greater than they ever imagined because it wasn't just salvation for them, but for the whole world. The gospel is God's comfort, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. The gospel is God's word that cannot be broken, that is sure as the dawn. The word of the Lord remains forever. And what's interesting that Peter makes that identification because Peter here quotes Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 8. And if you keep reading in verses 9 through 11 in Isaiah 40, this is what it says. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Remember at the end of verse 25 there, what does he say? This word is the good news that was preached to you. You see, Peter is interpreting this passage. He's saying that the gospel is what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 40. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, what is the good news? Behold your God. Behold the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Peter's saying, what is Peter saying? He's saying this, God has kept his promise. Why? Because 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. God has kept his promise in Jesus Christ. And so go proclaim the, the good news. The good news of what? Behold your God. He will shepherd his people. He'll gather them in his arms. He'll carry us in his bosom and gently lead us into eternal joy forever. And so number one, the word purifies our souls to love. Number two, the word rebirths us into eternal life. And number three, the word matures us into salvation. The word matures us into salvation. Uh, Chapter two, verse one says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so, Peter here is, is just, he's continuing to flesh out, right? If we're Christians, if our souls have been purified by obedience to the truth, which they have, if, if our souls have been, if we have been born again to a living hope by the living and abiding word of God, which they have, then we are to what? We're to love as Christ has loved us. And part of love, right? Part of love is putting off from our lives and from ourselves everything that is not love. That's part of love. It's putting off everything that is not love. And so that's what Peter says. Put away all what? All malice. That's just a general word for evil or wickedness or ill will towards others. Put it away. Kill it. If, you're, if you have some kind of ill will towards somebody, Peter says, put it, put it away. Get, get rid of it. Don't brood on it. Don't think about it. Don't plot. Put it away. Kill it. That's not love. It's not love. Peter says, put away all deceit. That means put away all lies. All pretenses. Put away even the tiniest fudging of a word or, a, or anything that might put something in your favor but obscures or hides the truth. Put away flattery or telling half-truths to cover up something or to excuse something or to gain an advantage. Any type of deceit, put it away. Why? Because God's a God of truth. And we live in the truth. And we're to walk in the truth. And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. We are people of the truth. I put on my Facebook today. I read it in our daily Bible reading. In the reading plan, there's still some left in the back if you haven't grabbed one yet. Jesus said, Jesus said, what has been done in secret will be proclaimed from the rooftops. You might get away with it. Now, but there will be nothing, nothing gotten away with in the end. Everyone will know because it will be made known by God. So better to do what? Better to put it straight now. Put it straight now. Don't deceive. Don't deceive. Put it away, Peter says. Psalm 115, Psalm, Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, who shall, jo- who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right 
and speaks truth in his heart. In his heart. Truth in your heart. If you can't speak truth in your heart, you certainly ain't going to speak it with your mouth. True in our heart. What else to put away? Hypocrisy. Pretending to be one thing while you're really another. Treating someone in one situation one way when it's in your favor, but treating someone else differently in the same situation when it's not in your favor. Hypocrisy. Kill it. Put it to death. Envy, which is jealousy, greed, wanting what others have, craving the praise that others receive, longing for relationships that don't belong to you, being not content with what God has entrusted to you. Kill it. Put it to death. Don't be, don't be envious. Don't brood on those things. Put it to death. Be, try the opposite command that, that is all over the New Testament. Be thankful. Don't be in a position where you're accusing God that he hasn't been good enough to you. Put away, Peter says, slander. Evil words, evil speech, unnecessarily painting a negative picture of someone to somebody else, regardless of how true you think it is. Speaking of others as you wouldn't want them to speak of you, put it away. Because our souls have been purified by obedience to the truth. And then finally, Peter says that we are to be like babies, he says, craving for the pure spiritual milk. The word spiritual there is um, an interesting word. It, it has the same root as the Greek word logos, meaning word, which he's been using here. And um, a better translation would probably be the, the, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which says to crave the pure milk of the word. In other words, I, I think what Peter's getting at is that what the thing that we are to crave, when he says that pure spiritual milk, the thing that we are to crave is the word of God, the pure word of God. And we're to crave it, as he says, like a, like a newborn baby craves milk. How does a newborn baby crave milk? Well, I've been through this four times now. And they crave it a lot. That's why you don't get any sleep. Because they want it, right? He's not really comparing Christians to babies here. He's just he's actually comparing the desire. As much as a baby desires milk, you're to crave my word. What's your relationship with God's word? Do you crave it? Do you crave it? Do you want it? Do you long for it? Do you want to consume it so that you it nourishes you so that you'll grow up? So that will grow and be strengthened and mature, just like Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do we crave it so that it satisfies our souls, so that we grow up and are strengthened and mature and are equipped to live for God in this world? If you don't crave it like that, then the, the answer is simple. Let's just get on our knees and beg God to give us the craving, Right? Taste change. So we can't just say, well, I don't crave the word, so I'm not going to read it. No, read it till you get a taste for it. One thing I've never, I've never understood. Okay, there, lots of people drink beer, okay? It smells like just straight nasty, okay? And then I talk to people, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's an acquired taste. 
You're telling me you're going to force yourself to drink that nasty stuff to you acquire a taste for it, but you can't read the Bible where the God says it's sweeter than honey, purer than gold, even much fine gold. Oh, I don't have a taste for it. Well, let me tell you something. Why don't you try it? It would be a much easier taste to acquire than beer, believe me. Sweeter than honey, purer than gold. He who has it has life. He who is instructed by it is wise in the world. He knows the way to salvation. Try it. Crave the pure milk of the word. When you read this book, when you have this pure milk of the word, you encounter almighty God. You can be sitting there in your room with your open Bible and see God's face. When you open this book. Crave it. Pray for the craving if you don't have it. And then just begin to consume it until God gives you a taste. Why? Because it's how we grow. It's how we grow into all these things. And as I close tonight, as I said, if we don't have it, then let's pray. Let's pray. And maybe tonight, I don't know, maybe... There's someone in this room or someone who will be listening to the sermon who has no taste for Christ whatsoever. Tonight I would say, he is sweeter than honey. He's purer than gold. He can purify your soul. His word can be planted in you so that you can abide forever. And so come to him. Ask him for forgiveness. Turn from your sins. Embrace him. Come to him. And you'll never be the same. And you'll find satisfaction (laughs) that nothing else in this world can offer. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the pure milk of the word, which